0: hello everyone and welcome to classic gaming today where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present i am your host tony and today we're going to look at mortal kombat a two-dimensional one-on-one fighting game developed and published by midway released to the arcades in 1992 with home ports to various consoles following in 1993. We're going to start talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 43. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, recommendations for future episodes, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you can reach out. I do have an email address, which is ClassicGamingToday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at ClassicGamingT, and we have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to engage with the rest of the podcast community and to engage with me directly. That's where we have all great discussions and talk about upcoming episodes and different games and all that good stuff. So I definitely encourage you all to join the discussion for anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, every single one of our episodes follows a very similar format and structure. We will always start, by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context within the entirety of video and computer gaming. And then we move into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a numerical ranking or a bunch of stars or things like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound the narrative and or story if the game has one playability and controls and overall feel what does it feel like to play the game today versus when it was released 20, 2030 maybe even 40 plus years ago and we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today and to do that we assign each game to one of several categories at the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should absolutely still play that game today. It has barely aged. You owe it to yourself to play those games. Just beyond the Pantheon are our golden oldies. These are still really good games. I still highly recommend that you give them a go, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre, you are almost guaranteed to have a good time. They don't quite hit that Pantheon level, but they are still worthwhile experiences, and I still recommend you play them today. Beyond our golden oldies, we reach the mediocre mentions. These are where we start getting into the games that I cannot recommend broadly to the population. You may still have a good time if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, but for the most part, I cannot recommend these to everyone. They have either aged a bit or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anybody play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Mortal Kombat. Mortal Kombat is a two-dimensional one-on-one fighting game developed and published by Midway, released to the arcades back in 1992, with home ports to various consoles following in 1993. Before we can talk about Mortal Kombat though, we've got to dive back into history to take a look at how the fighting game genre, and specifically the one-on-one tournament fighting game genre, came to be. Now, a quick word here before we begin. I'm going to take a slightly narrow stance from a definition perspective, because technically, if we're talking about one-on-one fighting gameplay, we could potentially discuss various sports games like boxing titles that are technically one character versus another. We could also talk about other more experimental titles, so to speak, like 1979's Warrior, which was the first game to ever feature a one-on-one player versus player melee combat experience. That game, though, consisted of top-down gameplay and the use of swords to either defeat your opponent or knock them into various obstacles on the screen to secure your victory. One-on-one fighting? Sure, but not really the slice of the genre I'd like to focus on today. So, for the purposes of our discussion, we're going to start our story by going all the way back to 1982, which is the year Karate was released on the Atari 2600. As with many Atari 2600 titles, karate would take some liberties with how it would present the concept of a karate fighting game. Developed by a company called UltraVision and designed by karate black belt Joseph Emilio, karate would feature two characters, a green guy and a purple guy, who would enter into combat for two minutes with the sole intent of hitting the other guy more than you got hit. Being a relatively primitive title, the act of winning the game involved accumulating a higher score than your opponent, which was accomplished by simply hitting your enemy as many times as possible. There was no damage modeling. There were no life bars. There was simply who hit more, and what your score was by the end of the two minutes. Karate's overall design was primitive, and the experience of playing the game was not all that great. There was pretty much nothing to do in a match other than spam moves for two minutes, and even then, the collision detection and controls were so wonky that there was no guarantee that you'd even hit your opponent despite your best efforts. But... That's not to say that there were no redeeming qualities about the game, as it was one of if not the earliest example of a one-on-one fighting game that didn't involve a pair of boxing gloves, and the gameplay included a fighting system that would feature a set of special moves per character, accessible by pressing your joystick in a direction and pressing your attack button. In other words, unlike other games of the time where your attack button was tied to a single type of attack, in Karate Pressing different directions on your joystick would modify your attacks. As a purely hypothetical example, this might mean that pressing forward and attack at the same time might perform a high kick, while pressing down an attack might perform a leg sweep. In this way, the game designers provided a more diverse moveset than the typical Atari controller could support, which would lay the foundations for future fighting games with much more complex and better implemented control schemes. Despite its historical significance, karate was considered by many to be one of the worst Atari 2600 games of all time, and today, it truly is a footnote in gaming history. What isn't a footnote though, and where our story begins to get really interesting, is the 1984 arcade classic Karate Champ, developed by Technos Japan and published by Data East. Karate Champ at Face Value sounds a lot like Atari's karate title we were just discussing. The game consists of two characters fighting each other with the goal of scoring the most points, only instead of a green and purple guy, you now have a white guy and a red guy. Beyond that core concept, though, there are a number of nuances that made it stand out well beyond its competition. In Karate Champ, you control one of two characters, and using a dual joystick control scheme, you compete with your opponent across a variety of environments, with the goal of scoring three points first. Points in this game are scored whenever you're able to land a successful hit on your opponent, and rounds will continue in this first-to-three kind of format until someone is declared the winner, or the time runs out, whichever comes first. Using the previously mentioned two joysticks, the game allowed you to input pretty much any combination of directions, with your character executing one of 24 different moves depending on the unique combination of joystick inputs you ended up entering. Assuming you beat your opponent, you would move on to the next stage with an all-new background and pretty much the same opponent you just faced, at least visually. This would continue for several levels until eventually the game would repeat itself back to the first level and you would start the process all over again. As you might imagine, Karate Champ was, once again, a fairly primitive experience. But that simplicity did, in fact, have more depth than what you might first think. And here, I can actually speak from personal experience. So let's take a little bit of a detour. I want to talk about four-year-old me back in the early 80s. I think I've mentioned this before, but for those who may be unaware... My first video game experiences were in the arcades of the time, and in particular, an awesome little arcade in Philadelphia known as the Galaxy. My aunt and I used to go to the Galaxy almost once a week, if not more often, and when we'd go, I'd try all sorts of different arcade games, though I did tend to gravitate towards one of three different experiences. One was skee-ball, which is just awesome no matter what your age is. From a video game perspective, though, there were two titles that caught my eye. Gladiator, which we're not going to discuss in this episode, though, for reference, that was itself an awesome game, and Karate Champ, which in the United States included player versus player combat. The original Japanese version, by the way, only contained computer-controlled opponents. Anyway, I would play Karate Champ constantly, and over time, I became pretty proficient at the game. I knew how to pull off any of the combos in the game, and oftentimes I was able to defeat kids that were much older than I was, all from the comfort of my step stool, since otherwise I wouldn't have been able to see over the control panel. While Karate Champ might seem simple, there is much more depth than you'd imagine, and knowing when to execute certain moves and read your opponent could give you the upper hand in any battle. And beyond how you strategize to tackle each fight, the one-hit-kill kind of mechanic where if you get hit once, your opponent gets a point outright added a ton of drama and tension to each and every fight. It was one of those games that looked simple to play, but was in reality a very engaging experience. And by the way, many other arcade-goers of the time agreed with me, as Karate Champ would become the top-grossing arcade title across multiple territories in both 1984 and 1985, and its eventual computer release would sell over 500,000 units, which was good enough to become the top-selling computer game of all time, at least until 1989. Beyond its commercial success and popularity amongst gamers, Karate Champ represents a pivotal point in the evolution of the fighting game genre, and for many, Karate Champ is considered the grandfather of the modern day one-on-one tournament fighter. It was the first game to feature a best-of-x round-based format, and was also the first game where you could block a move by pressing back on your joystick, two mechanics that would become staples of the genre all the way to the present day. Karate Champ would also serve to inspire a number of other kung fu-based fighting titles that would follow, some of which, like Way of the Exploding Fist, were somewhat minor tweaks to the Karate Champ formula. Others, however, would be a much greater transformation. After Karate Champ, though, there really wouldn't be a huge fighting game hit until 1987, which is the year that one of the most influential and well-respected fighting game series of all time got its start. That series, of course, was Street Fighter. The very first Street Fighter title was developed and published by Capcom in 1987, and was based on a concept by Takashi Nishiyama, who, after working on the influential side-scrolling beat-em-up title Kung Fu Master, had an epiphany. What if a game could essentially be a series of boss fights, rather than placing bosses at the end of a level that you had to defeat a ton of minions to reach? You could keep the same fighting gameplay, but by shifting the focus to be one-on-one encounters with powerful opponents, you might be able to ratchet the tension up and, in the process, still deliver absorbing gameplay, even though you weren't mowing down waves of bad guys. Street Fighter would end up refining, and in some cases defining, the various mechanics that would continue to evolve the state of the one-on-one fighting game. The game would feature tournament-style gameplay, where the player would select from one of several distinct, detailed characters at the start of the game, with the intent of traveling the world and beating other characters in one-on-one, melee-centric combat. Rather than model itself after a one-hit, one-point kind of mechanic, Street Fighter would feature life bars for each character, taking a page out of the side-scrolling beat-em-up genre. Each character would have access to a full suite of moves and combinations, and in what would be a first for the genre? the game would include a series of unpublished special moves that, should the player figure out the right combination of joystick and button presses, would unleash a devastating attack that could turn the tide of battle in an instant. The key to victory was learning your character, as unlike games like Karate Champ where everyone was pretty much equal outside of the color of their gi, each character in Street Fighter was unique and had their own traits and moves to contend with. Street Fighter would be a moderate success in the arcades, though not every innovation it tried to spearhead would be met with high regard. In particular, the first instance of the title would feature a control scheme consisting of a joystick and two rubber pads, one representing your punches, the other representing your ability to kick, with the game executing your moves based on how hard you yourself would physically hit those rubber pads. It didn't take too long before that particular control scheme was revised, with later versions of the game featuring a more traditional joystick and button combination. I will say, though, it was an interesting concept, but ultimately, just not all that fun to play. Regardless, Street Fighter would serve as a springboard for all sorts of fighting games, from similar one-on-one fighters to side-scrolling beat-em-ups. The release of Street Fighter was really the point when the floodgates for the fighting game genre started to open. At this point, though... I'd like to take a minor detour on our journey through the history of fighting games, and instead, let's turn our attention to arcade game developer Midway. We talked about Midway previously, including just a couple of episodes ago during our NBA Jam episode, but just to provide a little historical perspective. Midway was pretty much one of the most prominent developers of high-quality arcade titles in the 80s and 90s, with a portfolio that spanned all sorts of game types and genres. While some arcade developers of the time would choose to focus on a single kind of game like shooters or beat-em-ups, Midway's stable of games ran the gamut from sports titles to side-scrolling shooters to pinball tables to one-on-one combat titles to twin-stick shooters to pure, simple arcade fun. They pretty much had a hand in nearly every type of game you might imagine. To be a little bit more accurate, Midway was actually part of a larger group owned by the company Bally, who from a broader perspective had been a major player in the hotel hospitality and gambling industries, running both hotel casinos as well as developing slot machines and other games of chance for individuals to try their luck on. The company I've been referring to as simply Midway was really Bally slash Midway, which was meant to represent the video game division of that particular company. Regardless of the name, though, The fact is that the company was a significant contributor to the 80s arcade scene, and the quality of their titles would be a direct result of the talented teams and designers that the company would hire. In fact, a number of future industry veterans would get their start working for the influential company. For the purposes of this discussion, I'd like to focus on two in particular, Ed Boone and John Tobias. Ed Boone's first job out of college was actually not working at Midway, or on video games directly, but in a sort of adjacent market with a competitor, as Boone was responsible for designing and developing mechanical pinball tables for video game and pinball manufacturer Williams Entertainment. Over the course of his two years with the company, he had a hand in creating almost 20 different pinball machines— Boone's focus would change in 1988, though, when the Bally Midway division of Bally Entertainment would be sold off to help recover some losses the company had incurred while expanding into several additional industries, including the fitness and amusement park business sectors. The company that ended up buying Bally Midway, and ultimately rebranding the company to simply Midway, was, in fact, Williams Entertainment, and shortly after that acquisition, Boone began working more on video games as opposed to mechanical pinball machines around this time another individual john tobias would also join the midway team to begin working on future video game titles with his first assignment being the twin stick shooter smash tv shortly after tobias joined midway he'd be assigned to ed boone's team and it was this assignment that would eventually result in a truly revolutionary title being developed but first We need to shift our attention back to the history of fighting games, and specifically 1991, which is when one of the most popular fighting games of all time would hit the arcades, that being Street Fighter 2. Street Fighter 2 represented the state of the art in one-on-one fighting games, and as a sequel to the original Street Fighter, represents one of the biggest improvements from original to successor that the industry has ever seen. Street Fighter II would keep the foundational elements that the original title put in place, like the concept of a worldwide tournament with various characters, stages, and movesets, but it would iterate and improve upon nearly every aspect of the formula. Graphics and animations were incredibly detailed, with large, chunky sprites giving each combatant their own character. Separate stage music, all of which was absolutely awesome, would add to the action, and each character would receive a full complement of special moves and combos, which, assuming you practiced enough, would give you a leg up over the competition. Street Fighter II would prove immensely popular amongst arcade-goers, and would go on to become the third highest-grossing video game of all time, accumulating over $10 billion in sales over its lifetime. As other companies witnessed Street Fighter 2's success, they also began to think about how they could potentially create their own fighting game to both compete and hopefully steal some quarters from prospective players. One of those companies who wanted to get in on the fighting game market was, in fact, Midway, and shortly after the release of Street Fighter 2, Midway leadership came to the team of Ed Boone and John Tobias with a new project. They were asked to create a brand new combat experience designed to compete with Street Fighter And they needed to create the title within a year. This request is what would eventually morph and evolve into the creation of Mortal Kombat. Or, you know, maybe it didn't. There's actually a couple different conflicting stories around how the concept behind Mortal Kombat came to be. One of those stories we just went over, with Midway looking at the competitive fighter scene and deciding they wanted a piece of that pie, so they assigned Tobias and Boone to make it happen. Another account suggested that the game actually began its existence as a ninja-themed title that John Tobias had conceptualized, but that Ed Boon, as Tobias' boss, rejected, as did the rest of Midway's leadership, instead deciding to focus on a licensed game based on Universal Soldier, an upcoming film starring the muscles from Brussels himself, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Within that scenario, the licensing deal would eventually fall through due to another company already having started to work on a Universal Soldier game, so Midway decided to pivot and create a fighting game instead. Regardless of how we got to the point of Boone and Tobias beginning to work on a fighting game for Midway, the fact is that once that decision had been made, both of them got together and began to strategize about how to make their title different from the competition. Looking across the fighting game landscape— they saw a couple of defining traits. For one, the majority of fighting games used pixel art, a hand-drawn style for their graphics, with characters that were often designed to be larger-than-life representations of a combatant, and stages featuring tons of background information and details to help bring the player into the experience. Another common trait amongst many fighters of the time was the use of a precision-driven combo system of sorts, which would allow players to memorize and input various joystick and button combinations to unleash special moves on their opponent, sometimes even leading to a character getting dizzy on screen, which would allow for a few extra hits to be thrown in for good measure. And above all, while the art of fighting itself is, of course, a form of violence, most games of the time presented a cartoon like style of that violence, with impactful moves and strikes, but no real gore or blood or anything like that. The best exemplar of the prototypical fighting game of the time was, as you'd probably guess, Street Fighter II, so you might expect the Midway team to look to that title, and others like it, as inspiration for creating their own fighting game. Boone and Tobias, instead, did Almost the exact opposite, deciding to go further back into history as the core inspiration for the title, with the team's goal being to create an over-the-top, more realistic and hard-hitting version of a game like Karate Champ, as opposed to a simple evolution of the Street Fighter formula. With that overarching goal in mind, the team got to work on creating the title, and as we journey through its creation, we're going to focus on a couple different areas. To start, let's talk about the game's characters, setting, and underlying story, all of which were the brainchild of John Tobias. I hadn't mentioned it before, but when Tobias originally graduated from college, his goal was to become a comic book artist, and he had in fact developed a keen interest in drawing from a very young age, having been inspired by comic books of his youth. After looking at the graphical advancements that were occurring in the video game industry, though, he decided that a career in interactive entertainment would be more fulfilling, so that's what led him to join Midway Games. That background, however, would serve him well, as he sat down to begin creating Mortal Kombat, and, drawing on his prior skills, he designed pretty much every environment and character in the game— with the core concept of a dimensional-spanning fighting tournament coming from both his love of kung fu movies as well as an appreciation for Chinese mythology. The actual act of bringing these character designs to life, however, would involve a lot more than mimicking the hand-drawn graphical style that was prevalent in the fighting games of the time, and here Mortal Kombat would deviate dramatically from what came before it. Instead of relying on artists to create sketches of characters, the team decided that they were going to use the relatively new technology of digitization to take real actors and put them into the game, and under the control of, the player. Digitization as a technology refers to the act of taking some sort of real-world sorcerer object and turning it into a digital representation of that object. In its simplest form, that's really all digitization is, and I'd venture a guess that most of us use digitization nearly every day. Just think about it. Every time you take a picture with your phone, it's not like you receive a physical printout of the photo. It's all stored in memory as a digital representation of whatever scene you just shot. We don't even talk about the term digital images or digital photos today because digitization and digital technology are simply pervasive across our daily lives. But back in 1991, digitization was just really becoming a thing. So, the team decided they wanted to use real actors as the characters in their game, but now they had to figure out how to get those actors into a computer. To do that, the team recruited several martial artists and arranged for a series of video and photo shoots in front of a blue screen, with the intention of using chroma key technology to remove the solid blue background, which would leave them with a digital cutout of each actor, allowing Boone, Tobias, and the team of artists the opportunity to create game-centric animations out of those digitized artifacts. Now, for reference, I am not suggesting that the Mortal Kombat team was the first group to try using this technology for a video game, and in fact, Mortal Kombat wasn't even the first fighting game that would use digitization for its characters. That distinction belongs to a relatively unknown, well, at least to me, Japanese fighting game released in 1988 entitled Reiki Doshi Chinese Exorcist, a title that used stop-motion animation and clay figures to represent the characters and backgrounds of the game's world. The first more traditional form of digitization involving human actors being added to a fighting game was Pit Fighter, which was an Atari arcade title released in 1990 that, in some ways, would at least stylistically resemble what the Mortal Kombat team was intending to accomplish with their game, though I honestly don't have any proof that Pit Fighter served as any sort of true inspiration for Mortal Kombat. So, while digitization in fighting games was still definitely a newer thing, it was a technology that had been used previously. Anyway, getting back to Mortal Kombat, you might be thinking that using digitization would cut down on the amount of work that artists would have to do to bring those characters into the game, and in some ways you would be right, as there is some benefit to not having to draw every single pixel of a given fighter. But digitization was still in its infancy, and game development studios of the time weren't really well versed in the act of filming actors, or in this case martial artists. In fact, the video and photo sessions we were just talking about were filmed only because John Tobias offered to use his own personal camcorder for the sessions. So, once the artists had the opportunity to actually use the recorded footage and begin the process of extracting the actors from the background, they discovered that things weren't quite as straightforward as they seemed, because the outlines of each character often contained background color artifacts that all had to be touched up by hand for every frame of animation as you might expect that process took a ton of time to get right but the team knew that in order to make a quality title they had to invest the time to make it happen with digitized combatants making their way into the game focus now shifted to the overall fighting mechanics that the game would utilize with Boone and Tobias deciding to create a fighting system that would include both low and high punches and kicks, as well as a dedicated block button for players to use while pummeling their foes. By the way, the original concept behind the game had also included buttons for both middle punch and kick as well, but those plans were scrapped pretty early on, as they didn't really add a ton of additional playability to the title. Anyway, on top of those core moves, The team also added several special moves to each character, accessible by entering a combination of joystick and button commands. Here though, they decided to do something different than many fighting games of the time, as instead of having combos that were more martial arts centric, like a flying uppercut or a spinning kick, Mortal Kombat would introduce more fantastical elements, like shockwave projectiles, lightning bolts, fireballs, and a flying attack that literally involved a character flying across the entire screen to attack you. As these moves started to be implemented into the game, the overall violence level of the experience started to increase, and as the team continued to play test the game, they came up with an idea. Here was a game with digitized actors, which automatically made the game look and feel a bit more realistic and hard-hitting than its competition. What if they continued to amp up that realism by adding blood into the game, so that when you attacked an opponent blood would fly out from the point of impact, landing on the floor of the stage. It was something that hadn't really been done before, but the thought was, this game was being designed to appeal to a more mature gamer than the cartoon-styled visuals of other fighting games. Maybe that extra layer of blood and gore would make that appeal even more far-reaching. So, the team added the blood to the game, and once they played it, they knew they had created something truly unique. A gory, over-the-top, realistic fighting game that they believed would take the world by storm. But the gore didn't stop there, and the most influential and controversial aspect of the game was still to come. Recall earlier, I mentioned the concept of other fighting games employing a dizzy mechanic, where after a certain number of moves, a fighter would become tired, resulting in him or her standing still while their opponent could potentially get in a couple of free attacks. Well, Ed Boone really didn't like when that would happen to him in the middle of a fight. He thought that it broke up the momentum of the battle, and he felt like it just wasn't fun to be sitting there waiting for your opponent to attack you with no recourse. But at the same time, when he was the one causing the dizzying, uh, he liked the mechanic, thinking that it was fun to get a free hit in on your opponent. Boone and Tobias considered how to resolve this somewhat contradictory set of feelings, and eventually decided that the answer was to move the dizzy mechanic to the end of the fight. Rather than have the flow of battle be interrupted, players would be rewarded for depleting their opponent's life bar with a period of time at the end of each fight where they could unleash unmitigated punishment on their rival. But to simply end the fight with a punch or a kick, that just wasn't satisfying. So the team decided to add something else, something even more over the top than the moves they had implemented already this was the birth of the fatality now i'm going to venture a guess and say almost everyone listening to this podcast probably knows about the concept of fatality in mortal kombat so i'm not going to spend too much time talking about it here for those who may need a refresher though A fatality is a move that could only be performed at the end of a fight, and involves a series of button and joystick presses that result in a devastating, oftentimes deadly and gory, finishing move that is pretty much the ultimate show of domination over an opponent. It was over the top, it was revolutionary, and it was awesome. Eventually, almost a year from the point that Boone, Tobias, and the rest of the team began working on the title... Mortal Kombat would be ready to enter the arcade gaming scene around the world in August of 1992. And it didn't take long before players began flocking to the cabinet, all in the hopes of being crowned the next champion. Interestingly, the release of Mortal Kombat, while a big deal, wasn't a 100% runaway hit, and the reason for that was, in fact, Street Fighter 2. See, the thing is, Mortal Kombat represented a very different take on the fighting game genre. And if you put Street Fighter 2 and Mortal Kombat side by side, you could see pretty clearly that they were vastly different experiences. Unlike a lot of the games we look at in this podcast, Mortal Kombat did not define a genre. It kind of represented a branching of the genre into a different direction. That didn't mean that other styles of fighting games went away, though, and this division between Street Fighter loyalists and Mortal Kombat aficionados is what ultimately caused Mortal Kombat to not be a genre-busting runaway hit. Now, I say all that, but it's not to suggest that Mortal Kombat didn't perform well, because it certainly did. It would top the arcade sales charts for months following its release, and even through 1993, it would remain one of the top two grossing arcade titles of the year, right up there with NBA Jam, which by the way was another midway release. Its success would also spawn numerous ports to home consoles, most prominently the 16-bit systems of the time like the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis, as well as the major portable systems on the market like the Nintendo Game Boy and Sega Game Gear. Now the story behind those ports is actually also incredibly interesting to dive into. So now we have to address a little bit of controversy. Like we talked about, Mortal Kombat was a pretty violent game. Nowadays, the level of blood and gore included in the original Mortal Kombat wouldn't even raise an eyebrow. But back in the early 90s, when video games were still thought of primarily as children's entertainment, the thought of including visual blood in a title was very risky. There were other titles around this time that were similarly pushing the envelope, like the first-person shooter classic Doom. And this shift to include more realistic violence in gaming eventually garnered the attention of the United States government, who over a period of numerous hearings and reviews, eventually mandated the video game industry to figure out how to regulate the sales of violent games to minors. This would eventually result in the formation of the Enterprise Software Rating Board, or ESRB, which is the organization that applies maturity ratings to games even today. Similar in concept to film ratings like PG-13 and R, the ESRB would begin to designate certain games as suitable for minors, while others might have more questionable content and therefore should be reserved only for older, more mature gamers. At the time, Mortal Kombat's home ports were being developed, The ESRB still hadn't been formed yet, but the proverbial writing was already on the wall that violent video games were going to be looked at with much more scrutiny. So, that left video game publishers and console makers with a choice to make. How would they handle the conversion of one of the more popular, and gory, arcade games of the time? Well, if you're Nintendo... The answer, as it almost always was back in the early 90s, was to censor the content. So Mortal Kombat on the Super Nintendo became a decidedly less gory affair. All of the blood in the game was replaced by sweat, which, while still thematically relevant, was kind of devastating to teenagers like me who just wanted to rip someone's spine out from the comfort of their living room. Speaking of ripping people's spines out, that couldn't even happen in the Super Nintendo version of the game. Those brutal fatalities were replaced by much tamer, finishing moves. While the graphics of the Super Nintendo version were pretty close to the arcade counterpart, the gameplay and edgy nature of the experience was effectively neutered. The Sega Genesis version, however, fared a bit better. In its default release state, the game adhered to many of the same censorship features as the Super Nintendo version. But, as we all know, Sega does what Nintendon't, do so they added a cheat code built into the game that, if activated, would add blood back into the game. I recall, vividly, friends of mine bragging that their Genesis version of the game was vastly superior to my Super Nintendo version, and while on the surface, I never let it get to me I gotta admit, a small piece of me was upset that Nintendo's family-friendly mantra was preventing a game I enjoyed in the arcades from being the best version of itself. Anyway, turning our attention to the portable versions of the title, both the Game Boy and Game Gear ports would be dramatically less feature-rich than their home console counterparts, with the Game Boy being perhaps the worst version of the title at the time. It had limited controls, a reduced fighting roster, and grainy grayscale graphics. The Game Gear version would be a bit better, with both colored graphics and, similar to the Genesis version of the title, a cheat code to enable blood. But overall, the portable versions of the title were not really the way you wanted to be experiencing Mortal Kombat outside of the arcade. Those four ports, though, would be bundled together into one of the most massive marketing campaigns for a home release ever, at least for the time. It was decided by Acclaim, the publisher for the home ports of the title, that all of the ports would release on the same day, September 13th, 1993, a day that would come to be known as Mortal Monday. The commercial spot that aired everywhere contained a large crowd of gamers roaming the streets with different ones at various points exclaiming the words, Mortal Kombat, after which videos of the game would be shown on the screen. Anyone who didn't live through it might not realize how big of a deal it was or how far the marketing reach for the advertising really stretched. But I'm here to tell you that it was absolutely huge. To put it into perspective, my grandmother knew what Mortal Monday was. People who couldn't pick Mario out of a lineup knew what Mortal Monday was. It was almost a cultural event. Those four ports would come out as planned, and would sell extremely well, which led to even more ports of the title for other platforms, including the DOS and Amiga computer platforms as well as the Sega CD. While each port would have varying degrees of success capturing the look and feel of the arcade experience, they were all pretty successful commercially, and within a year of launch, over 6 million home versions of the game would be sold. That, combined with sales from the arcade unit, further reaffirmed mortal kombat as a blockbuster new entry in the fighting game genre beyond its origins as an arcade title mortal kombat's cultural reach would span numerous forms of media and merchandise including additional sequels and spin-off titles movies music television shows books comics toys collectible card games and even stage shows reenacting the mortal kombat fighting tournament even today there are no signs that Mortal Kombat Mania is going away anytime soon, and recent years have seen several new games released as well as a brand new movie series, as well as a number of crossover events between other popular franchises like Terminator and Robocop. While Midway itself is no longer around as a company... A number of the developers responsible for Mortal Kombat joined Ed Boon when he founded a new development company known as NetherRealm Studios, which remains the developer behind current Mortal Kombat titles, as well as various other fighting games like the Injustice series based on DC Comics characters. John Tobias ultimately split from the Mortal Kombat team in the year 2000, taking on a number of various jobs across the industry before joining Zynga, the mobile game development studio, back in 2012. He remains active in the industry today. The impact and significance of Mortal Kombat cannot be overstated. As a truly revolutionary and controversial entry in the fighting game genre, it pushed the envelope of what was considered possible, especially in terms of mature content in the video game industry. Over the years, it has spawned countless imitators, remained in the cultural spotlight, and continues to be a popular media property even today. This is a situation where a game that began its life 30 years ago has likely far exceeded anyone's original expectations. Mortal Kombat is one of those games that has transcended its origins and as such is likely one of the most significant game releases of all time. going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play mortal kombat today versus when it was released back in 1992 so to do that let's talk about the overall structure of mortal kombat so that we can see how it chose to implement the various one-on-one fighting game mechanics of its peers while seeing also how it blazed a new trail on its own so at its core mortal kombat is fairly traditional one-on-one fighting when you start a game, you pick from one of seven characters, and depending on who you pick, you then face a number of other characters, and you basically go through an entire tournament, consisting of fighting pretty much every other character in the game, including a mirror version of your own character, followed by three endurance fights, which are two-on-one battles, followed by a fight against the sub-boss Goro, who is a four-armed demon creature from the Outworld, and then finally, a battle against the big boss Shang Tsung a wizard who can shapeshift into any of the other characters in the game. Now, along the way, you'll encounter a couple of minigames that ask you to break some wooden blocks, but that's really only done to provide additional points on the leaderboard. There's really no benefit, per se, to winning the minigame, though it does break up the arcade action just a little bit. The majority of the game, however, is fighting. Each fight follows a best-of-three format, where you need to win two rounds in a given fight to move on in the tournament. The movesets for each fighter consist of two types of punches and kicks, with modifiers possible based on what direction you press on your joystick. There's also a block and special moves that you can pull off if you know the right combination of button and joystick moves to hit. The special moves for each character are relatively limited, with most fighters having around three special moves each. As an example, pressing back, forward, and low punch might make your character perform a fireball throw. Most characters' special moves seem designed to close the distance or provide a degree of ranged attack, though they can certainly be used up in close combat. But i found most of the time when I'm using my special moves, it's usually because I'm a little bit further away on the screen from my opponent and I just want to be able to do some damage to them or be able to get closer to them if possible. And speaking of characters... Let's just go through them real quick. Though, I do want to note as I believe most are likely aware, the Mortal Kombat series has evolved dramatically over time. So, while this roster might seem limited compared to today's ridiculous number of characters in modern Mortal Kombat releases, every game has to start somewhere. So, for Mortal Kombat 1, here are the characters you had the ability to choose you had Kano who was a mercenary type and who the Mortal Kombat movie from the early 90s tells us is this evil mercenary that Sonya Blade just doesn't like. You also have Liu Kang, who is probably the best pure martial artist in the game. From a canon perspective, also, Liu Kang is pretty much the main character. So the interesting thing about this game, and I'm going to take a small diversion here, is that no matter who you pick, Everybody you pick when you beat the game, you get a storyline or an ending specifically composed for that character, which is awesome. That means no matter who you play, you get something that's tailored to your specific character. The thing is, though, as you move from game to game and you move through the sequels, eventually, if you want to have any sort of continuity, there has to be some sort of canonical decision that says, "Okay, yes, in the first game, just using Mortal Kombat as an example. Okay, in the first game, anybody could have won the tournament, but by the time you get to Mortal Kombat 2, from a game design perspective, there's really no way, especially from an arcade game standpoint, to remember or to figure out who beat the game using which character and have that story transfer over cleanly. So the developers have to pick who, from a canon perspective, is really the winner of the tournament. And in this case, or in Mortal Kombat, Liu Kang is almost always the guy. So, Liu Kang is, from a canon perspective, the victor of the tournament from just an overall storyline in the Mortal Kombat universe. Going back to the characters, you also have Raiden, who is one of the Earth Realm's gods, and he is the master of lightning. He is very reminiscent, by the way, of the lightning, uh, I guess, god or not God, but the lightning guy from Big Trouble in Little China. If anybody has seen that movie with Kurt Russell, which, by the way, is awesome. I highly recommend that one. But in that movie, there is a lightning guy that kind of has a straw hat and looks very similar to Raiden, at least in terms of overall appearance. Anyway, Johnny Cage is the next character we'll talk about. He is a Hollywood star, and he's trying to win the tournament for fame and fortune. And interestingly, Johnny Cage is based on Jean-Claude Van Damme who was a popular movie star who starred in a number of action films in the late 80s and early 90s. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, that one of the possible origins of Mortal Kombat was an attempted licensed title for Universal Soldier, which was a film starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. Johnny Cage was a way of working a similar kind of character into a game with a Hollywood backstory that represents a little bit of parody of the traditional action movie star kind of trope. You also had Scorpion, who was a ninja clad in a yellow colored gi, and he embraces fire. Probably the most famous line out of Mortal Kombat was spoken by Scorpion. That line is get over here, where he throws out a spear attached to a rope, and he pulls the character back into uh, back closer to him so that he can attack. By the way, Ed Boone, one of the creators of the game, he himself is the actual voice behind the Scorpion lines, which I thought was cool. There's also Sub-Zero, who was a ninja clad in a blue-colored gi, and he embraces ice. He was effectively an alteration of Scorpion, and from a model perspective, he's simply a palette color swap, which, by the way, is kind of a theme with some of Mortal Kombat's characters, even the more modern ones. There are a ton of different characters that began their existence as simple palette swaps and subsequently evolved into more unique kinds of characters. There's also Sonya Blade, and I believe she is the last playable character we'll talk about. She's kind of a soldier type, although she does have more flexibility than you might expect. Now, outside of the playable characters and the bosses Goro and Shang Tsung that we talked about briefly, there is one secret character, Reptile, which is yet another palette swap for Scorpion and Sub-Zero, this time with green as the primary color. Reptile can only be encountered under a very strict set of conditions you have to play in the pit stage you have to see something fly in front of the moon you have to not take any damage across two rounds you have to not use the block button at all and you have to finish the fight with a fatality if you do all of those things then you've earned the right to fight reptile and i gotta say honestly i I love the fact that the game had a secret character, and similar to our discussion on NBA Jam from a couple weeks ago, the whole concept of secret characters was a big schoolyard discussion back when Mortal Kombat came out. I spoke with many friends who told me that they had the inside scoop about how to play as Goro, only to find out later that they were simply incessant liars whose fathers all worked at Nintendo for some reason. Oh, yeah, uh, they lied about that one, too. Anyway, generally speaking, the game involves you depleting your opponent's health bar before your opponent can deplete yours. And for most of the fight, the game plays out exactly what you would expect a one-on-one fighting experience to be. The biggest shift comes at the end of the fight, when the iconic words, Finish Him, appears on the screen. This is the prompt for you to enter a fatality and totally destroy your opponent. Now let me tell you i love the concept of the fatality an ultra powerful finishing move that literally kills your enemy sign me up this was mortal kombat's main claim to fame when it was released and even today it feels great to pull one off though i will say the fatalities in mortal kombat 1 are incredibly quaint if not downright tame compared to modern mortal kombat fatalities now before we move on I would be remiss if I didn't mention the multiplayer component of Mortal Kombat, because as with many fighting games, the multiplayer piece is where most of the gameplay and replayability actually happens. For its time, Mortal Kombat delivered an intense, fun, one-on-one experience, but for the purposes of this podcast, I didn't have an opportunity to play against anyone, so I'm going to focus mostly on the single-player experience. Since Mortal Kombat was released well before online play was pervasive, there really aren't many options for multiplayer short of finding someone to play with locally, which can sometimes be challenging. Now, I do know that Arcade 1-Up has actually released a couple of Mortal Kombat uh, cabinets over the past few years. I am not sure if any of those have Wi-Fi play enabled. If they do, that might have been an option, but I do not have a Mortal Kombat Arcade 1-Up machine. Anyway, before we start talking about the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and the sound, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love seeing how companies market their games. I love seeing how they present themselves on the back of the box, because around this time, there really wasn't all that much ability to get information about games before you would buy them. You either had word of mouth. You may have had some magazines. You certainly didn't have the internet and YouTube to be able to look up gameplay videos. But a lot of times when you were making your buying decision, it happened in the store based on how cool the box looked and what the back of the box said. Now, for Mortal Kombat, I recognize that since it began its life in the arcade, most of the time, if you're going to buy Mortal Kombat, you probably knew what it was based on that arcade experience. But regardless, I still like looking at the back of the box. So for Mortal Kombat, and I'm going to look at the Super Nintendo version because that was the version that I owned for Mortal Kombat. The back of the box says. Prepare yourself. The number one arcade hit is here, from Sub-Zero, Raiden, and the rest of the combat warriors to the grueling endurance and intense mirror matches. Execute bone-shattering combos and ferocious finishing moves. Defeat the half-human dragon, Goro, and destroy the shape-changing Shang Tsung to become the supreme Mortal Kombat warrior. And then there are a few screenshots showing a finish him move with Scorpion just lighting somebody on fire. There is shattering some wood blocks and even an iron anvil and a couple of other shots of fights as well. And of course, I did buy this game when it released because like we were talking about, the advertising was pervasive. And plus, I just loved playing the game in the arcades. All right, let's move on to talk about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. Surprisingly, the digitized sprites mostly hold up even today. I'm not going to say they look amazing because there are definitely some jagged edges and the animations aren't nearly as fluid or lifelike as modern fighting titles. But honestly, it doesn't matter. Mortal Kombat's graphics evoke the feel of the time that they were created, which is to say early 90s arcade with large characters and bright colors, though much more subdued than other more cartoon-like fighting games. All of those characters look pretty darn good, by the way. And beyond the digitized actor models, I want to call special attention to Goro, the sub-boss of the game, who I remember finding terrifying when I was younger. Today, he's still an imposing beast of a character who is notable because he's the only character in the game that wasn't represented by a digital actor. Instead, the team used stop-motion animation and a real-world model to overlay recorded moves performed by one of the game's martial artists. And I gotta say... The stop-motion work looks great. As far as the backgrounds and stages are concerned, they look decent, but definitely had a bit less detail than what we're used to seeing with today's titles. From my perspective, the background work in Street Fighter II is actually more interesting than the Mortal Kombat backgrounds. There's just a lot more going on to attract your interest. I think the Mortal Kombat backgrounds are fine, it's just not really the high point of the visuals for me. Moving on to the sound and music, The music does a pretty good job of blending into the background while still overlaying a sense of urgency to the action, and I think it works within the context of the game. I don't think there are any particularly memorable tracks, and I honestly don't recall any melody, so to speak, but while you're playing the game, it does mesh well with the visuals. Sound effects by contrast all sound great, with every crunchy punch and kick enhancing the action on the screen. From my perspective, there's only one real memorable sound effect from the game, and that is Scorpion shouting, get over here, when he throws his spear out to impale and capture an opponent. Otherwise, all of the grunts, hits, and other noises are enhancements to the game experience, but don't really stand out on their own as something to seek out. Overall, no real complaints about the sound or music. It is there, it works within the experience. Moving on to the narrative and story... Mortal Kombat, for a fighting game, surprisingly has a pretty defined backstory. The game is centered around a tournament held in Earthrealm, which is our Earth, which has been held for hundreds of years. Each time a tournament is held, the best fighters on the planet are invited to fight to the death and attempt to emerge victorious, though for the last nine tournaments, a single champion has reigned supreme. Goro, a four-armed monster from Outworld, a minion of the evil wizard Shang Tsung. As the 10th tournament nears, an ancient agreement is approaching completion. If Goro can win for the 10th time in a row, Shao Kahn, the Emperor of Outworld, can come to Earth and claim supreme rule over all. As the 10th tournament approaches, Earth's greatest fighters are once again put to the test in the hopes that Shao Kahn's plot can be foiled. The only way that can happen, though, is if one of Earth's champions can emerge as the final victor of Mortal Kombat. I'm not going to lie. This story really worked for me. I loved the setup, and it feels straight out of an 80s martial arts action movie. The story here was pretty focused, and during the game itself, there's really no reference to the story until you beat the game, at which point you can view your chosen character's ending. But regardless, that overarching plot provides a great framework for the fighting gameplay that follows throughout the game. It's simple, and it's not what I would consider high art, but it's terrific nonetheless. Moving on to the playability and controls, fighting games really live and die by the effectiveness of their control schemes, and here, I think the game strikes a good balance between accessibility and depth. You control your character using a combination of your joystick and five buttons assigned to two punches, two kicks, and a dedicated block button. Using those controls, you can string together a seemingly endless array of self-created combos to wreak havoc on your opponent. Note, I say self-created combos because, to the best of my knowledge, there aren't any pre-programmed combo moves like would pop up in the later Mortal Kombat games. In this one, you mix up your moves to chain together various hits, with the effectiveness of your combo being impacted by the skill of your opponent. There are special moves for each character as well, including the fatalities we spoke about earlier, as well as other less deadly maneuvers. These are explicitly programmed into the game and differ by character, so it's up to the player to discover what button combinations allow you to execute those moves. Or, you know, you can just button mash your way to a modicum of success. Now, I'm not condoning simply smashing buttons as a means of actually achieving victory, but I am sure we've all been in a situation where you're playing a new fighting game You have no idea what the combos or special attacks are, and all you do is wail on different combinations of inputs trying to find something that works. Mortal Kombat allows that too, but I will say against computer opponents, you really won't get too far without at least some strategy, or at a minimum, exploiting patterns that the computer can't really defend against all that well. Controls-wise, this feels like a simple fighting game in comparison to today's releases, at least in terms of potential moves and how they work, but Honestly, it works. I really don't have any complaints with the controls. As far as playability goes, though, I do have some critiques. First, I have to mention that the computer difficulty really spikes the further you go into the tournament, at least from my perspective. The early one-on-one fights really aren't that bad, and I felt pretty much in control of my own destiny, I could counterattack, I could plan my moves out, I could react to unexpected hits, and it truly felt like a pretty solid back-and-forth action kind of situation. Once you hit the endurance fights, though, things get much more challenging. The endurance fights are a series of three fights in the tournament where you have to beat two opponents, still using the best-of-three format. Those two opponents both have full life bars, so that basically means that you have to be able to beat two enemies in succession before you lose all of your HP, and you have to do it twice in a three-round period of time in order to move on. Now, I do have to mention, I will never profess to being super proficient at fighting games. I can hold my own, but I am not an expert, and I always look at fighting games more from the perspective of fun as opposed to high-level competition. I say this because it's entirely possible that for more advanced players, the endurance fights aren't that bad. For me, though, they were a bit like hitting a brick wall. Just for reference, I almost always play as Johnny Cage because I like the whole Hollywood action hero kind of thing. Playing as Johnny, I found the endurance fights a little bit cheap and most likely designed as a way to eat quarters. I did eventually get past them, but I wouldn't call them particularly fun. Another critique has to do with the computer's artificial intelligence, which was truly artificial and in some cases borderline unfair. It's important to note that back in the early 90s, developers didn't really understand how to create high-quality artificial intelligence routines, so oftentimes they resorted to simply reading player inputs and reacting. What that means is that when a developer wanted to create something that is of a higher difficulty level... All he or she had to do is tell the computer character what moves the player just did and assign a higher probability to the computer blocking or counterattacking that specific move. It's very robotic and artificial, and the difficulty in the single player experience is driven primarily by that type of programming. It's kind of par for the course for titles of the time, but it really doesn't hold up well under today's scrutiny. Otherwise, I think the game played and controlled fine, assuming you have the patience to deal with the artificially difficult single-player experience. So overall, how did it feel to play the game? Mortal Kombat is a simple fighting game in comparison to modern titles. There aren't a ton of moves per characters, and there really isn't anything in the way of character differentiation other than their visual appearance and their special moves. That said, the game still feels fun to play. I will admit that I had some frustration with the late single-player gameplay, due primarily to an arbitrarily increased difficulty, but honestly, that's just the way arcade games were, and if I put my arcade hat on, the game is surprisingly not all that bad in comparison to other brutally difficult titles. I found the graphical style and overall experience of playing the game to be almost like a warm hug, which is a really odd thing to say about a fighting game with fatalities as a core mechanic but it just reminds me of a simpler time. And even if you've never played the game before, I bet you'd find something to like in its simplicity. So what is our overall verdict for Mortal Kombat? Regardless of what our verdict is, it's an absolute fact that the original Mortal Kombat was an instrumental release in video game history, and its influences can be felt even today. That being said, it is a very simple take on the fighting game formula, at least in comparison to modern day titles. If you never experienced Mortal Kombat before, you'd probably still have fun, albeit potentially in limited spurts. If you did experience Mortal Kombat back in its heyday, then returning to it feels like returning home, and it welcomes you back with an early 90s aesthetic that is evocative of the time in which it was created. I think Mortal Kombat is something everyone can appreciate, but I don't think it holds up quite as well as future titles do. And for that reason, I believe Mortal Kombat is a solid golden oldie. It's something you should experience, even if only for the historical perspective. If you do give it a go, I truly believe you'll have a good time, but I do recommend you temper your expectations. This is not the Mortal Kombat's of today, with tons of differentiated characters with numerous moves, multiple fatalities, babalities, friendships, and brutalities. This game is just Mortal Kombat in its most base form, and as a straightforward one-on-one fighting experience, it gets a lot right. It's just not quite as deep as today's experiences, and because it has aged just a bit, it firmly sits as the newest member of our golden oldies. Was our episode on Mortal Kombat. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general, I would love to hear from you. And there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to get engaged with the rest of the podcast community, to engage with myself directly, and just talk about some awesome classic games and technology. We have a ton of good discussions out there, so I do highly encourage everybody to join that discussion. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on the point-and-click adventure game Toonstruck, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that experience, or maybe even if you've heard of that experience, because I'm going to guess and say Toonstruck is probably a little bit under the radar in comparison to some of our other episodes, so I'm excited to talk about that, I hope you guys all are as well. At the same time, if you'd like to provide feedback on the show, you can either shoot me a note or if you wouldn't mind reviewing this podcast on your podcast engine of choice. It's not about bolstering star counts or getting a ton of five star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is gathering the feedback necessary to be the best possible podcast this can be. That has really been my goal. I have enjoyed growing the community. I think it's been awesome so far, and I want to continue to gather feedback to make sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast I can and delivering the content that you all want to listen to. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Toonstruck. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.